Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It's August 21st, 2023, the fourth day, by the time you hear this, the fifth day of Elul, 5783, winding down on the Jewish year. Um, I'm going to warn all of you ahead of time that this show is going to be all over the place because my mind right now is all over the place. And I have with me um, one of the, I figured if I'm already like very confused, let's get one of the smartest people I know to be on the podcast with me. Uh, David Wormser, whom, whom you may know because I've had him on before, as, as have other people, um, descent from the Center for Security Policy, former, former senior official uh, for Dick Cheney. Um, although I'm not so sure, David, that even in this case, we're going to be able to provide any answers. Maybe just we can frame the questions in a smarter way. I'm thinking, I don't Oh my God. I'm the best person to talk to because I do confusion very well. Yes, yes. But I figured, you know what? We're on different sides of the pond. I'm back in Israel after two and a half weeks speaking in the States, um, which was itself like incredibly challenging, uh, depressing, exhilarating, all the same thing at once, um, just as an example. So I left from Los Angeles last Friday. I got home right before. And you're, of course, in the Washington, D.C. area. I, um, I got, I ate my favorite tuna fish in the entire world, and I am going to give them a plug, is Nagila. It's on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles. The last sandwich that I ate before I got on the LL flight, because I didn't know when they were going to serve a meal, and, you know, God forbid I should be hungry at any point, um, was a tuna fish sandwich from Nagila. And then, of course, you know, on Saturday morning, Nagila and four other kosher restaurants in Los Angeles were attacked in what doesn't even look like it was robbery and then they took the cash register it was more really like you know smash windows and destroy the place one was about to open so that was just like part of what was going on we'll get to that during the course of the show um because i'm really in a state right now this morning um a young woman who actually grew up in efrat which is where i live same age as my oldest daughter um lives in now in beit Chagai in the southern just south of Hebron mother of three, on her way to work here in Efrat, where she was a very much beloved kindergarten teacher, was shot and killed. She took a ride, as many people do, with someone from the community and uh, with her daughter in the car. It's unclear exactly how old her daughter was. doesn't really matter at the moment. And car drove by, shot at them. She was killed on the spot. Um, the driver, as I tape this, her friend, the driver, uh, we're not clear. It's not clear. He's, he's not in good shape. He was airlifted to the nearby hospital. Not clear, um, what his state is. And this is happening on the roads, um, all the time. And Jews are getting killed right and left. And there's just a feeling, David, I mean, I'm feeling it here because I live here. This is the road that I'm on all the time, uh, just by way of interjecting how personal this is. Um, last night, my husband and I went, to a wedding, more on that later also because of where the wedding was. But on our way back, there was a car with white license plates because we share our roads with the Palestinian Authority cars. Uh, we do not have apartheid roads, even though everyone likes to say that. And um, the car in front of us with the, with the white PA license plates was behaving very suspiciously, suspiciously, slowing down like to force us to really come up close to him. There was a motorcycle rider that kept riding next to him. Neither of them stopped, but they were speaking through the open window. The whole thing was very suspicious to the point where I actually took out 
out my phone and I started taping what was happening, trying to get his license plate because I didn't know what was going on. Another car came by, zoomed past all of us, almost caused a major collision because he went into ongoing traffic. And then as we turn into Efrat, the, the three of those vehicles, the motorcycle and the two cars, turn into Bethlehem. And of course, that's the no-go zone because since the Oslo Accords 30 years ago, we gave up uh, you know, the, the ability to, unless it's our soldiers going in after someone in particular, but you know, that's it. And so this is a, this is a minute by minute daily thing on our roads here. And uh, I'm feeling it in a very personal way, but David, we're, you know, you're seeing what's going on from on the other side. What's your sense of what is going on here in Israel with the demonstrations, with the, you know, the army, with all of it? Like, how, how is this as an analyst and someone who loves Israel and has really spent decades, decades studying what is happening here? What's your sense of, of what's happening right now? Uh, well, on the 40,000 foot level, my suspicion is what's happening is the culmination of a lot of trends. and. They're all culminating at once because, in part, some trigger the others. So what are some of these trends? I mean, the first one is, uh, you know, we need to forget about the reform process for a moment. I'm not saying defer it or anything. I'm saying forget mm-hmm. about using it as an analytical tool because nothing about this anymore is about reform. It is about super right. societal factors that are coming home to roost, factors that go back to the origins of the state. Uh, number one. Number two, Oslo. Oslo has had immediate consequences and those we saw in the in the free flow of blood in the decade or two after Oslo. But now we're seeing the long-term consequences of Oslo. And by that, I mean the delegitimization of Israel that, that was directly a result of Oslo, and we can get into why. And two <clears throat> is the breakdown of the concept of law and lawlessness that emerged from Oslo. And three was the uh, uh, essentially the policy, the detachment of policy consequences from from, uh, responsibility that emerged from Oslo. So you see those two large trends. Uh, Oh, the fourth area of Oslo is the fact that Israel didn't turn over the territories to a functional state and right. whatever relations of the state would be, it turned it over to a vacuum that remains a vacuum. Uh, and, and, and so essentially you're dealing with a failed uh, war zone uh, that, that is a co- competitive environment for the most radical factions, not only of the Palestinian world, but the Arab world as a whole operating within the belly of Israel. And that has consequences. And then finally, uh, is the trends toward tolerance. Uh, if there is a sort of apartheid in Israel, it's the inverse of what Israel is accused of, which is essentially there's been an attitude of, yeah, the Arabs, they have illegal guns, they do illegal building, they they engage in a lot of illegal activity, but do we really want to hold them to that? And what's happened is this has created a sense of lawlessness in the Arab community. Uh that is now exploding as well, uh, in, not only in the in the territories, but also in Israel itself. And then finally, I think we're seeing, and this goes back to the original societal trends, I think we're seeing an ideological assault that is part of the overall Western crisis. Israel's not detached from the West. 
And what's got the fissures in Israel remind me very strongly of much larger forces at work in the West that are very scary and very dangerous. Well, I interviewed Rachel Ehrenfeld on the Soros Agenda, on the book that she just put out a couple of weeks ago, and that was a very, very frightening interview. And, I mean, he's got his hand in virtually every rotten thing that's happening, uh, definitely in the United States, and I'm sure here as well. So, you know, it's not like my listeners uh, aren't hearing what is happening, you know, all all over. And it's like this perfect storm. I mean, you say war zone. I'm feeling now for the first time in a very long time that there, that we have lost control of the roads here. Um, for those of you who don't have a map in front of you and you should. So where I live in Judea, there are areas that are controlled by Israel. What's called area C, which is 60% of Judea and Samaria. And the other 40% are controlled by the Palestinian Authority, which is essentially a terrorist state that's now has its own internal violence happening. But where the weak link is here for us is the roads because it is the roads that connect the Jewish communities here to other Jewish communities here and to little Israel. I'm not going to say greater Israel, but to Tel Aviv and to Jerusalem and into, you know, the state itself, because no government since 1967 has even applied Israeli law out here, let alone annex the area or anything, you know, more, more official than that, or more legal than that, if you will. Um, but it's, uh, it's so, you know, when we had elections a few months ago, there was a sense, okay, like the right had won. And and I want to say that, and my listeners know this also, I did not vote for the people who are sitting in government now. Um, it doesn't matter. Obviously, once there's a government that's elected, you support them, you hope for the best. Um, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but should I be blaming the government now for the chaos that we're now seeing? Or this would have happened, in your opinion, David, or, or this would have happened whether Ben Veer was, you know, the minister, the police minister or not. What's your sense on that? Uh, well, I mean, you know, when a, a sitting government, especially one who's, even though BB was out of power for two years, has been around a long time. I mean, there is a leadership question. Um, and, and 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 how to use the real power of government, which is first and foremost the bully pulpit, to define the public debate. But that said, you know, one can quibble over the leadership uh, success of of Netanyahu in communicating with the Israeli people at this juncture. But at the end of the day, I think the real problem lies in these big trends that are beyond any immediate right. policy to fix. Um, so Ben Gvir, whether he's right, wrong, he has ideas, he doesn't have ideas, it doesn't matter. This violence will continue for a while, and there can be tactical <clears throat> answers that may media, uh, mitigate it. But the real issue here is, first and foremost, that the Palestinian world has not reconciled to Israel. And it is no. at war. And it, and it thinks of itself at war. So it acts on a daily basis. Everything in their mind is filtered through the concept of war. So we can find one tactical way to deal with this issue, but they will come up with five other tactical ways to work around it. So until we recognize we are at a war, I'll give you an example, the archaeology. Right. Israel, Israel just doesn't care about the archaeology. You know what happened? Literally, I'm looking at it right now. It's outside my window on the other side of the hill. They destroyed Solomon's Pools four days ago. Great example, Solomon's Pools. They just eradicated it. Eradicated it. Bulldozers, it's done. 2,000 years old. 
And there's nothing we could do. It, it violates the Oslo Accords for whatever. Of course it does. Work. But but what what I'm getting at is Israelis say, okay, you know, it's bad. We don't like it. Oh, they're nasty. A few Israelis will say, yeah, kind of reminds us of ISIS. They really shouldn't do that. This is a strategic political attack. This is not an act of vandalism on a high level, just like terrorism is not a criminal act on a high level. These are strategic assaults on the very idea of Israel, the very legitimacy of the existence of Israel. If you are out to eradicate, and this is why the statements by Abu Mazen that everybody sort of snickers at about, oh, there was no second temple, there was no temple, blah, blah, blah. We kind right. of or Holocaust, or any of it. <laughs> you know, it's his Snickers bar. Um, so, you know, for a snack. It, no, this is part of a strategic delegitimization of the Jewish people, not just of Israel and Zionism, of the Jewish people. It fits the narrative of we are Hazars or other Europeans who were converted and are not belonging in the land of Israel. We're just European colonialists. It fits the progressive agenda of these are just the latest to attack indigenous people, these Zionists. This attack on archaeology is meant to, to yeah. punch Erase. a hole in the yeah. soul of Israel. It was Jerusalem before that if we can just give the Jews to give up Jerusalem, we punch such a horrible hole in their soul that they begin to crumble from within. And now they're going after the other part of it, which is any historic connection to the land of Israel. And in this, they have full European support and funding and encouragement. And we know this because a European memo leaked half yeah. a year ago or a year ago, where they were openly working with the Palestinian Authority yeah. to suppress any archeological evidence of the Jewish connection to the land under the idea that if you if you find any, the Jews will then claim that land as if, as if there's any doubt to begin with of the ancient Israel and the second temple period and so forth, as if we even needed archeology. span and, and that's kind of our view is we don't even need archeology, span but we do. Of we course we do. Physical evidence to show the world this is us 2,000 years ago. My great, 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 great times 10 grandfather built that. Right. I come from there. That is my indigenous home. And, and these are the colonialist interlopers, the, the Ottomans, etc., the, the Arabs even. So I just cannot understand the lack of knowledge of the, or lack of awareness of the strategic assault the lack of awareness that terrorism is not just a criminal activity. It is a strategic assault to wear down the enemy. We are the enemy. And it, I, I just don't, don't see why. And I think this is a major failure of Israel's security establishment. From the very beginning, they came up with this idea of Shittachon, uh, um, Pitachon Shotaf and Pitachon right. Which is translated into English is current security and basic security. And the idea is there are basic security threats, which are the army of Syria or Egypt invade Israel and try to destroy it. That's a basic security threat. And they have current security threats, which are terrorism. Um, and the idea is the latter doesn't really threaten Israel, but it threatens the peace of Israel. But it doesn't threaten Israel. It's time. We understand that in a war such as we're fighting, 
It is a threat strategically to the existence of Israel. I would argue it's an even greater threat than the tanks rolling across the border. Because the tanks rolling across the border, it's very clear who the enemy is, the, the Syrian army, whatever. It's very clear who you are, everybody who's in arms uh, on this side of the border or just on this side of the border, whether you're sitting in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, or the Golan. Very clear. Not a hard moral choice. You fight for your survival. But the terrorism has obscured the front line. Mm -hmm. And it's deliberately obscured the front line to destroy our concept of, of who we are and with that, who we are being attacked by. So, I mean, yeah, I'm like, look, I'm upset with the army in the sense that they've allowed people to say, I'm not showing up for my reserve duty and I'm not going to be in the tank. I mean, the enemy is also listening to that. And what's not being reported, of course, is the majority of the people who are saying like, are you kidding me? Of course, we're going to be there. So it has weakened Israel. But look, I, I see the army as a tool. It's a tool to defend the country. And I'm going to say that the responsibility for the messaging comes with the leadership and not with the army. The army doesn't, you know, set policy. Like you said, it fights the wars. It trains, hopefully, people, and it fights the wars. And the fact that it got involved politically, I think, is probably one of the top two, and I'll think of the other one, um, horrible things that has happened in the last few weeks, that the generals didn't immediately shut it all down. Everybody, that's it. You keep your politics at home. We're not discussing. You're not coming. You're not coming you're not this it's not happening it didn't happen with the disengagement and when people actually lost their homes and it's not going to happen now um so in that in that sense i do blame the army but other than that i mean there look and this is this is this is where we're getting into the zone where where uh, why i'm so upset because I, i'm not a rocket scientist by any stretch of the imagination just a normal person who knows her history and looks around it was clear from 30 years ago that Oslo wasn't going to work that the whole idea of land for peace was wrong because the reason that they hated us wasn't because they thought we'd taken their land. It was because they hate who we are and what we're doing here, as you just said. But why? What has happened to like numb our brains? That this is really what's coming to, you know, it's not even the enemy. The enemy, I get. That's his mandate. That's what he's going to do. He's never going to accept that there's an Israel. It's not even all the Arab world. So I don't want to get letters now. You're speaking in generalities. It doesn't matter. The people in power are the ones who decide in the Arab world, and they're the ones who don't accept Israel. And I'm not talking Abraham and Saudi Arabia and all of that. I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority and the people right around us. And, and we accept that. What is going on, though, is where I'm stuck with Israelis and Jews. To not see this, are we so tired of being hated that we're like, it's like the beaten wife syndrome on crack, if you will? Like we just can't see it because if we see it, then we have to do something about it. And we're, we don't know what to do. We're, we're trying to like not hurt anybody, but in the end, we're getting hurt. It, this is where I'm so sad and disappointed and, and, furious, absolutely furious at some of my own people who two hours after a father and son are killed on, on Shabbat, getting their car washed in, in the Shomron, already holding up signs saying we're for uh, the right of return, meaning that the Arabs who left in 48 as a result of a war that they started uh, should get to come back to wherever their great grandparents came from in 1948. I mean, it it's like, it's, is this treason? Is that too harsh of a word to use when you're trying to undercut your entire, the mandate of your, the existence of your entire country? 
I, I look, there's all these things are at work. I again, there's there's a lot of complexes, a lot of issues. The return of the Galut mentality. Israel was supposed to repair the Galut mentality. Instead, it's become a manifestation of it to some extent. And and deep in that is, I think there's a crisis in American Judaism and there's a crisis in Israel that stems from the same place. And that same place is this deep desire to become quote normal. We're going to give happening. up. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. It's not going to happen. So the normal in America is leading to mass assimilation and essentially the unraveling of the American Jewish community. Yeah, I saw that on my trip also. So many wonderful and devoted Jews who are intermarried, their kids aren't Jewish, and for all intents and purposes, it's gone. Yeah. To that, oh, in a, in a world of freedom, kids are going to choose what they choose. But no, kids do what they do because of the core values they hold. And if the core values aren't there, if the if the belief was we don't, we want to somehow no longer be specially Jewish. We want to become normal, just another denomination of America. <laughs> then and then and then that void of of belief and faith is filled by various causes. The first thing that happens to a grandkid is he says, okay, well, if I want to save the whales, I don't have to be Jewish to do so. So I can marry a Christian. Right. You know, right. if 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 there's no unique value. Judaism. What you are yeah. Jewish. Then why be Jewish? <laughs> why bother? It's a big pain. <laughs> if your progressive values are so important, you can be a progressive and not be Jewish. And that's what happens when they go to and they marry somebody. And then they put a bumper sticker on their car with Hebrew letters because that still says in some way I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, the, 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 so uh, there's that. The normalcy in Israel is the idea that we will be accepted among nations in a normal way. Namely, we will live like Luxembourg. First of all, there is no such thing as normalcy in international relations. The history of the human people in the last 2,000 years, 5,000 years, has been essentially, you live your life internally the way you want to define it, but you will have external threats and you must always address those. Otherwise, you're going to lose everything. That is default of human existence for a long time, if not in our nature. And Israel, the idea that they can somehow exit the war when the Muslim world, especially this half of the Muslim world that surrounds Israel, has not departed from much older forms of politics, Israel will not be in a normal circumstance. There is nothing Israel can do to end the war. It can sign peace treaties. It can have all sorts of things. But even with a country like Egypt, Israel always has to keep its eye open. Oh, yeah. You know, you live in peace. You live happily in peace. You're happy that for 40 years, 50 years, you haven't had a war that's claimed any Israeli kid. For real. I mean, you've had terrorist attacks like the one ago. But the Egyptian army has not been ordered to kill Israelis. And that's a good thing. No, I was in Egypt in January, and they treated us very nicely. But, you you know, the main streets are still named after the Yom Kippur War and, you know, what we call the Yom Kippur War. And you still understand that, uh, that, you know, if they had to list their friends, uh, Israel's probably not anywhere near the top of the list. There is still very much that sense there that it could all go 
a different leader, a different leader with different interests, and it flips in a second, in an absolute second. Deep down, Israel has to understand we are not ever going to be a normal nation. So what's it going to take for us to understand? Some of us understand that very well, and not just because of the terrorism. We understand it because we, we think and we look and we listen. We listen to the other people. I actually believe them when they say that they want to eradicate me. I don't think it's just rhetoric. I think American Jews, I don't know, and I don't know what can save right. them. I think in the end, Israel can save them, namely that that the inversion of world Jewry is is now real, but not realized. Namely, American Jewry will exist and continue to exist as a satellite, ultimately, of the orbit of Jewish communities surrounding the sun, which is yeah. Israel. Right. Um, rather than America being the big brother to little Israel. The American yeah. Jews are no longer the big brother. They are not... They are not more people. They are not. No. I mean, I understand what happened after World War II. Israel was a struggling little lifeboat. Yes. American no Jewish friends. Community was a solid ship. Right. And, you know, American Jews were the ones who had to protect that little lifeboat. But this is now not the reality anymore. The, the Israelis outnumber the Americans. If you factor in the per capita GDP of Israel and American Jews, what you'll see is they're beginning to reach. In raw numbers, they're beginning to reach parity and so forth. Slowly. No, and the vibrancy, the vibrancy of a Jewish life here, of speaking Hebrew, of the calendar, Shabbat being the day off. I mean, everything, you feel it. And again, I was just away two and a half weeks, and I felt it so deeply when I came back, just the Hebrew signs and the way people are. This is a Jewish country in however you want to interpret that, and that's part of what I was doing out there, is trying to explain that it's not Jewish in the sense that many people understand Judaism. It's a whole new animal, or maybe it's a rehash of the Hasmoneans, I don't don't know, wasn't there. But it, this is an exci- such an exciting, vibrant place with everything that's happening. I couldn't be, live anywhere else. But there's this like mental block that we have in understanding the role that we need to play, I think, on the world stage to some degree, much bigger than we're willing to play. And I'm wondering if that's some of the fear that in a world that seems like it's collapsing their values, we actually, you want to call it the light of Torah, you want to call it, you know, whatever it is, I don't care what you want to call it there's something here that the world needs and not just for me or for you at the end of the day what what what's happening here is again it larger world trends i mentioned there's a crisis in the west anybody who travels to america right now again it's oh not about it's not about lgbt it's not about the school books Right. Wokeness. It's not about all that. It's just like it's not really about the reform here. Yes, exactly. It's a deeper crisis, which is the um, the hyper modern state, the secular hyper modern state, um, which treats religion as essentially a little museum, yeah. not a source of values. I'm not saying everybody has to become religious. But at least respect religion as a source right. of value. Dis- disdains family, disdains the family unit. Yeah. A cultural foundation. There is genuinely a Judeo Christian foundation to the West. Uh, otherwise, we come, become Roman in, in, in late antiquity, and we go the way of Rome in late antiquity, which is gone. Um, so, what's happening in the West is I think you're seeing the crisis of this hyper modern state 
the elites are wedded to that concept, whether it's the EU elites or the East and West Coast elites of America. And Israelis look at that and they don't see the America of Wyoming. They don't see the America right. of the outer suburbs, even of the East Coast. They they see America through the corridors of power in Washington, through the cultural institutions that are projected abroad, whether it be Hollywood or whether it be the New York Times or whatever. So they imagine that this is the age in which the hyper-modern state is being threatened by troglodytes and retrograde forces, and that has they have to circle the wagon and they ha- and they have encouragement of this vast international structure that then can essentially reassert this hyper-modern, hyper-secularist model. And again, I'm not advocating religious uh, uh, imposition. I'm simply saying a respect for your own background, where you come from. And the reality is that there's there's a large, that that elitist reaction is toward actually something which is happening deep down. Regardless of the way the American elections go, there is a deeper fundamental rejection of the elites that is happening in America. And there's a deep fundamental reaction to elites that's happening in Israel. Now, Israel, having been reacquainted with the idea of power for the first time in 2000 years, and Judaism having been distorted since Yavne in focusing much more on personal ethics and not the other side, which is Jewish history, Jewish peoplehood, the collective and yeah. responsibility. Ironically, we're in an inverted world, and this gets to the point you made of that Israel has something to offer. Christianity in the West, even those who are now rebelling against the establishment, Christianity has been so utterly delegitimized as a foundation for values and politics in the West that they essentially they, Christianity now has assumed the role of Judaism. They're a disempowered body that's retreated on the edges of personal ethics. Whereas in Israel, Judaism still informs the identity of Israel. And as a result, Israel, for the first time in 2000 years, is having to address issues of Judaism and power and sovereignty. And as a result, Israel now is the front line of the tradition that was in the West, from Thomas Aquinas to Machiavelli to the American forefathers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Israel now is the battleground. It is the front line, which is why not only Israel's elites who are on the other side of this debate, but the American elites are rallying around that. And Hmm. I I think that's making this much more intense and dangerous because they understand if Israel succeeds, if Israel changes the fundamental narrative right now of Western debate and re-anchors Western civilization back to the Renaissance and back to the Enlightenment, both of whom respected religion as a foundation for values. They didn't seek to eradicate it. They sought to balance it with science and have some sort of a condominium, if not even um, resonance. Mm-hmm. Which is religion is a, is, is a museum that should be relegated to the Smithsonian. And God help us if any of our relatives become religious. 
Not to mention the times, too many times in history, when religion became really the source of violence, be it the Crusades or the Inquisition, or now we have the jihadists. So there's that fear. I can see that fear perhaps in Israel as well. Like, you know, if we, if we, proclaim that this is who we are, then it automatically leads to uber power and using it the wrong way. And which is not, I think, where we're going to go at all. But I could see that maybe some people are saying, you know, religion is the source of a lot of violence and a lot of death. More people have been killed in the name of God, blah, 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 blah. You hear that all the time with some justification. Yeah. With in Israel all the time. Mm-hmm. But what I don't hear is the counter argument with which is in the last century, uh, leaders who have uh, attacked religion and are irreligious have killed a hundred million people, whereas religion hasn't. Um, the, there is a there is a dehumanization and destruction that comes with putting man as God, and and uh, that has claimed more people in the last hundred years than any anything else. I understand the problem of religion. I see it in Khomeini. I see it in. The Shinto Japan in World War II, Mikadoist Japan in World War II. And, and, and it's a warning that, yes, I think the right should always hold in its heart. You, you must have Jabotinsky with Begin. Jabotinsky, <laughs> I think, was flawed in the sense that he, like so many of his generation, thought that the Luftmensch, the disempowered Jew, is a distorted animal, and therefore we have to just depart from the whole diaspora Throw out the baby with the bathwater to a great degree. Yeah, yeah secular yeah. nationalism. That was the spirit of the age of secular nationalism. And Begin reintroduced the element of, no, I mean, the, the reason why I, I say, you know, and, and, and uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik has done some amazing lectures on Menachem Begin and the anchoring to the 2,000 years of Jewish history that preceded him. And the culmination of diaspora Jewry he represented, and the culmination of diaspora Jewry, frankly, that Israel represents. So it it is a very important foundation. You need both. You need Ben Gurion and Begin, Ben Gurion and Jabotinsky, along with Begin. I understand that, but you can't eradicate what Begin. Begin understood that at the end of the day. The European world was heading to a to an existence without a soul, and America is heading. We to see it now without a soul. Yeah, and that is We've not got the preview on Europe. Is not a sustainable entity. When Americans, when American forefathers looked back, they understood they were obsessed with Rome, and what they were obsessed with is how did Rome go down? How did this great empire? within 400 years, be essentially an unchallenged superpower of the world, collapse to a bunch of Yahoo barbarians right. within 400 years. And, and, and the answer was that it, there was a, an abandonment of the virtue that was embedded in politics under Cincinnati, Cincinnatus, and that's why mm-hmm. so many societies of Cincinnatus in America, which all the founding forefathers belonged to, they understood that there was a soul, a virtue that needed to be returned to. But they also understood something else, which is the pagan Roman Republic was incapable of sustaining that soul. And the only real foundation that turned Rome around was the rise of monotheism in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So go to 300 AD, right? pagan Rome going down, no innovation, 
demographic collapse, economic contraction, etc. And yet in the Christian and Jewish communities, you had demographic explosion, innovation, huge commerce. The balance internally in Rome was shifting. And that's why Constantine chose Christianity, is he understood that monotheism was the key to survival. So he essentially pilfered the Judeo-Christian core in order to try to halt the collapse of the Roman Empire. And frankly, it succeeded for 400 years. Rome yeah, turned they did. Around. The fact that it collapsed in the end, I think, had more to do. Uh, and in fact, even when it collapsed politically, it continued culturally. But in the long run, I think the Arab assault is what ultimately did in Roman culture. But the mm-hmm. past, you know, Americans understood that, and they weren't going to make that mistake again, which is why religion was a ma- was a very important thing for Americans all the way up until the 50s and 60s. I know everybody yep. in Tel Aviv yells and screams about the buses not running or the <laughs> not running. Religious coercion and all of that. You know how many yeah. American municipalities have no public transport on Sunday? Yes. I, I lived in St. Louis up, for a while. I grew up they still have blue laws. Yeah. I grew up in Maryland, the Democratic stronghold in the 60s and 70s. The outskirts of Washington, Maryland, Baltimore, the heart of the of the Democratic Party machine. We had blue laws. And mm-hmm. we still have blue laws. You still have yeah. to certain liquor stores cannot be open on Sunday. Yeah. You know, the idea that America was irreligious. Is just Europe. A country that said that God we trust on its money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Europe, <laughs> since World War II, has been. But Europe yeah, is, not, yeah. is, is proving itself unsustainable right now. Right. And that's a real For many reasons. But America, yeah. Yeah, and what you're seeing is deep down beyond the corridors of power in America, you're seeing a reaction. And they need help. They don't know where they need to react to. They know what's wrong. They don't know where to go. And that's where Israel comes in. Because there is a core in Israel, and I think a larger majority in Israel, that sort of accepts that core. And yeah. right now they may be confused and they're scared and they want it all just to go away. So they get angry every time there's a new reform proposal because it's like, no, 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 please just make it go away. It's not going away. That, but, but at the end of the day, there's a bigger battle that will not go away. And that big battle now is over what defines the soul or rather what defines a soul versus versus modernity, which has no real soul. That, you know, being able to eat sushi at a, you know, eat shrimp sushi at a restaurant on Saturday that you go to in the light rail does not define your soul. And it may define certain values you have, which is tolerance and openness, fine. That I get, but at the end of the day, there are certain fundamental elements that define a national soul. And I think in Israel, unfortunately for Israel, maybe fortunately for Israel, it is the premier battleground. It is the main battleground. Yes, it is. So that's what Israel has to offer, but it's also the price Israel has to pay. But then again, that's the price we've always paid. That's that's it's what amazing. It's it you know, it just never an easy choice. 
It's a crazy thing to live through, but I'm going to, you're starting your day. I'm ending my day. I'm guiding tomorrow in the Shamron, going to be having delicious wine and enjoying our time there. But I just want to end with something. And I really want to thank David Wormser for bringing in so many ideas, even more ideas and giving, I think all of us, my listeners, I'm sure appreciated so much, um, a lot to think about. But when we, we went to, I said, we went to this wedding last night and it was in a place called Bror Chayil. It's a small community just outside of Stero just outside of Aza. And it's associated with Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the great rabbis of the post-temple period, um, the period where we have, you know, the temple is gone in the year 70, and then we have Hadrian and a lot of things going on and a lot of um, attempts to really eradicate the Jewish soul. And Hadrian has a lot of laws, specifically one not to have circumcision, which is, you know, the, the ultimate covenant between Abraham and God. And the community, so he's associated with Borchayel, and the community just up the road is called Orhaner. And Orhaner means the light of the candle, because what the Jews would do 1900 years ago, when there was going to be a circumcision, and you would be killed by the Romans if they found out, they would put a candle in the window, and then everybody would know that this was happening, and quietly come and celebrate, and try and keep it a secret from the Romans, because again, it was something that you could die for. And we're standing there at this very noisy, I would have to say even too loud wedding, celebrating the joy of a new young couple in Israel. And I looked around and I'm intimately familiar with that area and with the history of the area. And I thought, you know what? The Romans, they were so powerful and they wanted to quash that Jewish soul. And here we are with that Jewish soul on display and with full joy. So if you look at a very, very, very big picture and pull out the lens very, very wide, I am hopeful. I am a believer and I think that we will be okay. But when you narrow that in to today and to so much, the the violence, the internal violence, the Arabs, the, the misunderstandings, even some of the hatred and the not caring, it looks very bleak. So I'm, I'm, I'm on that. That's my, that's my, that's where I play. Everybody knows that all the time between the zoom in and the zoom out and the zoom in and the zoom out. So I just want to end with that note that on the picture, the big picture of humanity and whatever God was intending when he created this world and gave us the Torah and the people to follow it and try and be good and decent people as much as we can. Those of us who believe that have to work very, very hard because the, there are many forces against us. But we've been to this place before and we have survived. Not everybody, not even close to the majority, but enough of us have. And we're here and we're rebuilding it again. I'm not going anywhere and this country's not going anywhere, but we have some serious decisions that we have to make. I think the decisions that we have to make now are more serious maybe than even the outside enemy. It's the internal you know, source of strength and understanding that we've got to sort out. Otherwise, we're just going to leave a lot of confusion all around us and behave in a confused way, which is exactly what we're seeing today. So again, David Wormser, thank you so much, really. And, and thank you again for at the last minute, like agreeing to be on this podcast, because I was opening my mic and I was crying because I'm so upset about what happened today. I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. My listeners deserve better. And better is definitely you. So thank you so much again for your insights and really for your brilliance and also for really for your love of our people. And, uh, you know, and I know your son now and uh, he's a credit. 
to his parents. Let's just put it that way. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you to Ben and to Tabitha. This is Eve Harrow. Made it through this one. We'll be back next week. Uh, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for being who you are and where you are. And um, we've got a lot to do. And we are not going to give up. Take care, everybody. And goodbye for now. The question is, why are the Jews there in the first place? The Jewish people have been yearning to return to their ancient homeland for a long time. It's the Yishai Fleischer Show, the voice of a new generation of pro-Israel activists. And there's only two kinds of minorities in the Middle East, armed or unarmed. Inspiring minds to think differently. That jihadism doesn't just attack Jews. It attacks Christians, and it mostly attacks Muslims. Inspiration, spirituality, and politics. So first and foremost, this country is here to defend Jewish people and to live in its ancestral homeland. Listen to the Yishai Fleischer Show every week on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.